demand for seafood is going up and up and up. And in Brixham, for the first time in its history, which is hard to believe, we've got fishermen uh, in small day boats that are actually landing uh, their fish uh, directly to customers, so literally selling it off the boat to people. And uh, it's magical to see, and, uh, and I hope uh, it'll be something the town will continue. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. There are some people in the world of seafood to whom we should all tip our hats. Whilst there are many hardworking, committed and talented individuals working in every area from catching to cooking, there are few who are as comfortable hauling a creel on a scampi boat as they are cooking a turbot over coals or telling the story about both activities to diners and media alike. It is rarer still to find someone who thinks, speaks and acts with absolute love about all things seafood. Mitch Tonks has become one of the most respected and knowledgeable seafood people in the world and an acclaimed restaurateur, chef and author in the process. His seahorse restaurant in the coastal town of Dartmouth in the southwest of the UK has won many awards. His rockfish takeaway restaurant chain is equally acclaimed. Each new day begins as though it was his first. From his base at the Seahorse restaurant, Mitch is acutely aware that what he serves is only as good as the weather, the climate and the season allows for his fishermen chums to work the waters of the southwest of England, ultimately to provide the seafood that is the beating heart of his restaurant business. Mitch's enthusiasm, commitment and love of seafood in every form is often intense. It's always infectious and absolutely inspirational. Mitch Tonks is a real star of the sea. Well, I grew up in a little place called Western Superware, which is on the north coast um, in Somerset, on, so on the, on the, in the southwest peninsula. And as a kid, you know, I mean, we were just sort of left to run and go and do our own things. You know, we used to play on the beach, and I guess the, the beach became my playground. And uh, I used to fish a lot, water ski, wakeboard. And uh, and there was just a, a kind of real love. I used to go, you know, on fishing boats, catching conger eels and all that kind of stuff. And, and then I used to spend a lot of time in the kitchen with my grandmother, who was just the most fabulous cook. And, you know, I'd be sent down to fishmongers with her to go and pick up crabs and brown shrimps and all sorts of things. And I'd, I'd just sit there preparing them with her. You know, it was just it was just it was just normal. You know, she wasn't the most amazing cook in the world. But I, I guess in those days people did cook. So it's kind of what I remember. And then I had a bit of a wandering career uh, getting into building and all sorts of things. And um, at sort of 27, decided I wanted to open my own fish shop because I was just, uh, you know, I'd realized that I was so enthusiastic about seafood and nobody was selling it in the UK. And that's when it started. Um, and then I, you know, had fish left over in the evenings, and I used to think, why can't I just open a little restaurant upstairs and and and, and cook it? And it was quite interesting because, you know, at that at that time, um, you know, this is back in '98. Most of the kind of fish restaurants in the UK were very classically run by very classically trained chefs. Lots of cream involved uh, with all the cooking. And I was kind of watching what you guys were were doing over there and. You know, seeing the kind of Asian influence of things, and also you know re- reading cookbooks and things, and old Jane Grigson books, and that they were just grilling fish. They were doing things incredibly simply, and so that's what I started doing, and that's where I really discovered, you know, wow, I, I love this, and I also love this this wonderful nakedness about great seafood. With a strong fishing tradition dating back to the 14th century, Brixham is credited with being one of the birthplaces of trawling. In the 19th century, it was recorded that Brixham had 270 sail-operated decked trawlers employing 1,600 seamen, making it the largest fishery in England. Brixham is now England's largest fish market by value of fish sold, in excess of £40 million worth, and over 40 different species of fish and seafood are landed commercially, 
from the majestic Dover sole to cockles, whelks, and pippies. Okay, so in the southwest we have um, the English Channel. Obviously, it's a, a very fast-moving uh, bit of water. Tide comes in and out every single day. We catch over 40 different species from that water. Uh, you know, from gurnards to pouting to sea bass, turbot, big meaty flatfish that uh, that sit on the bottom in those uh, in those conditions. You have wonderful shellfish, so lots of crab, lots of lobster, lots of crawfish being caught at the moment, which is interesting. They're repopulating our waters again, and uh, and, and Brixham is the biggest fishing port in England. Then you move west, and you've got Plymouth, which is a smaller port. There's about five to six million a year. Then you move further west, and you've got Newlyn. And uh, Newlyn used to be um, uh, a sort of premier port in the UK, but it's uh, fished out of uh, less and less. But you've got a big hake fishery um, west, and hake has become one of those fish over the last few years that fishermen have done a great job in promoting and uh, getting MSC status on it. So it's uh, in pretty much demand. And then as you go north, um, of course, you're into Peterhead, where you've got a lot of whitefish um, being you caught know, from the North Sea. Scotland, you'd be Haddock, eating langoustines cod crab mainly white fish you might see the odd monkfish when you move south you you know you're and, and you you'd have mussels up in scotland too when you move south uh, and you're on the south coast you see a lot of oysters and you'll see all of the species that uh, that i just talked about um so but you know we, we've not been really good at kind of embracing it in the uk we kind of export most of it which is uh, which is frustrating in fact probably about 90 percent of what we catch goes abroad and um, again, it's uh, it's frustrating, but you know, people have been on missions for years. Me to sort of you know get the British public to eat more, and you know we are eating more. But the reality is, is that our seafood's expensive, and uh, you can't just convince a, a guy on the street to go and spend a hundred quid on a sea bass or a hundred quid on a turbot. So uh, most of the market for this stuff is in in Europe, and, and most of the target places will be restaurants. Operating a seafood-based menu is challenging on so many levels. Supply can be fickle, handling such a perishable protein can be tricky, and then there is the cost of the raw material. Running a group of seafood restaurants is a task not for the faint of heart or shallow of pocket. For Mitch, it is truly a labour of love. Our little empire is, um, we have eight, nine restaurants, one called The Seahorse, which is a top-end seafood restaurant. We cook over fires there and we've been, been around for 12 years and it's uh, sort of pretty much Italian influenced. And then we have a, um, uh, eight restaurants called Rockfish and um, probably inspired really by kind of trips to um, Australia seeing you guys and how much you really embrace fried fish beyond the way that the Brits used to do it so um, you kind of go into our restaurant see any amount of local fish it's not just one white fish we're grilling it plantering it shellfish and, uh, and we also have our own fishing boat behind that so she's catching fish every day and, uh, and bringing it into our uh, little operation where we process fish and buy fish every day on the market and, uh, and our vans take it to the restaurant. So it's a pretty cool setup. And, uh, you know, I've, funny enough, I was out uh, selling a few bits and pieces yesterday, dropping off some fish to people. I just can't keep my hands off a, uh, a box of fish and really wanted to kind of uh, share it with people. And, um, yeah, still doing it, loving it. A restaurant is possibly the simplest, most universal business idea ever conceived. But delivering an experience that leaves the diner both sated, surprised and delighted takes a rare and special combination of food, ambiance, service and bonhomie. The seahorse is as rare and as special as it is successful. Well, the seahorse was a, um, you know, when I finished up with Fishworks, uh, myself and Matt, who I'd worked with for 20 years, I just sort of, you know, we had this idea that one day we'd sort of hopefully make a bit of money and uh, we'd go and sit by the sea and we'd grill fish over fire. That was our, that was our whole thing. And uh, so we, when we when we got out of Fishworks, we 
decided that, you know, I found this premises in Dartmouth and dragged Matt to get involved with me. And I think, you know, I've been traveling around Europe a fair bit, eating around Italy and, you know, really enjoying the spirit of Italian restaurants where, you know, they'd been in existence for a hundred years. And I think for me, my favorite restaurants, Sostanza, Harry's Bar, El Gato Nero and Burano, you know, these are, these are restaurants that have stood the test of time. They don't do anything in, innovative. They just do great hospitality. And so I thought, I want to create a restaurant that's going to be here like well past me and uh, and leave a legacy and so we spent a lot of time you know designing it building it sprung seats you know nothing too fancy but everything about it absolutely right and it's one of those dining rooms that you walk in and just feel like this place has been here 200 years and it is just the best place ever and since you were last there sus we've we've added a bar to it we've not through one of the toilets we've got a premises out of the bar we've got a little bar called joe's bar named after one of my mates who sadly died and we've got a private dining room where we keep all our wine with a table in the middle of it just across the way so it's in three buildings now and um all my team have been with me there since the start jake who's now the head chef who was a, an apprentice uh, 12 years ago um, you know, he's now running the, running the place. My son, Ben, is a uh, sous chef there. And I, I kind of guide them on the food. They kind of know how we want our food to be. So seafood pastas, um, a lot of cured fish, uh, a lot of grilled fish. We're still cooking over open fires. We, we always have done. It's amazing how that's all become become a thing now in the cooking world here. Everybody's doing it, but 12 years ago, we were grilling turbots over fire as they do in Spain. And it's just one of those places that I, I mean, I, 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 was, I went in there yesterday. We're not really allowed to go in our restaurants, but I just went over there to check it. And the emotion I feel just walking in there is uh, it's just fantastic. From Mitch's kitchen window, here's a view across the Brixham Harbour and out across the beautiful Tor Bay. On the eastern side of the harbour lies the Brixham Fish Market. The Brixham Fish Market can be dated back to the 14th century. And 18th century reports can be found of high-value catches such as turbot, sole and place being landed and transported to markets as far as field as Exeter, Bath and even London. Fast forward to today and Brixham's reputation for landing top quality fish, coupled with the availability of fast transport links to Europe, has opened up new markets and increased demand. Now, over 75% of the catch landed at Brixham Fish Market is exported to countries including France, Spain and Italy. Not only is Brixham the largest fishing port in England in terms of volume, but it is also the most valuable. For Mitch, it is home. That's the great thing. I mean, I'm looking out my, my house window and, you know, watching the boats come in and, and I still go over to the fish market, you know, three, three times a week. And then when I... When, when, when this crisis is not on, I go over there pretty much every day just to have a look at what's going on. I like to know what's going to our restaurants every day. And, uh, and that's our supplies. I mean, we are incredibly lucky. And I, I've sort of come to realise, I think it was like, again, going to Sydney Fish Market and seeing fish restaurants around the market where the boats land. And it makes so much sense to me to like, if you want to eat seafood, go to the coast and eat it on the coast off the boats. It just doesn't taste the same when you're away from the coast. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's why our restaurants have, you know, eight of them are all, all dotted around. And we've actually got a restaurant in Brixham Fish Market now. And uh, again, inspired by the Sydney Fish Market. And, um, you know, it's a wonderful thing to sit there eating oysters, looking at fishing boats coming in. Landings every year are about 40 million, including shellfish and cuttlefish. We're a big cuttlefish port. So we have uh, security gates at the 
top of the security gates, you've got our little restaurant and our cafe. Uh, people go in, you're into the market, and up until, and it's, it's basically two halls, one for day boats and one for beam trawlers. And, uh, and then there's a, a refriger, another refrigerated area where they sell scallops and, and another area. So it's four halls actually where we sell cuttlefish and large amounts of squid, anything that's going to kind of leach ink and, uh, and contaminate other fish. And it used to be up until three, four months ago, it was a shout auction. Um, so you'd have four auctioneers, they'd all stand around the boxes and they'd start a price, 250, 353, and everybody would bid, bid up. And it was something that the, the fishermen didn't like because, of course, the buyers then completely controlled what went on with prices. They'd all, you know, you'd have little cartels saying, well, well, well let's just pay 450 for the hake. And they, they'd kind of share it out amongst them. So uh, we have one big family now that own most of the quota in the boats in, uh, in Brixham, Robin and Rowan Carter, smashing guys. And they pushed hard to get an auction clock in place. And I'm pretty glad they did. I mean, it was alien at first. Everyone was fed up about losing the tradition. And while it was good fun, uh, this is better. So you can now buy from your home. You can buy from your office and you're just watching an auction clock, which is pretty much um, all the uh, fish markets around the world now, I think. Um, and what that had the in initial effect of is driving prices up 10 or 15% because, of course, all of a sudden foreign buyers, supermarkets, um, all were able to buy. So there was quite a lot of change because some fish merchants packed in. They lost their customers, their, their wholesale clients were able to just go and buy direct. But it also opened it up for people like me because previously, you know, I couldn't get in amongst all those other buyers because they'd always, they'd always bid you up because they wanted less buyers on the market. But now um, everyone has access to it. So once you've bought your fish, um, the market workers go around, put tickets on it, you know, rockfish and, and, and all that stuff. And, uh, and then we stack up the boxes and we have a processing unit um, 50 meters from the market. And uh, it goes into the, into the processing unit and then, uh, and then we, we fill it dry fillet and, um, and get everything out to the restaurants. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty uh, cool place. There's a 24-hour market too, so boats are landing all night. And the auction starts sort of six in the morning. Uh, the first fish is sold. And depending on how, how much fish there is, it'll stop when the last, when the last fish is, is sold. Um, once we finish, we'll take fish into our little cafe. Um, one of the girls will cook it. I'll always have an Armagnac and, uh, and have a coffee. And, uh, and, and that's how it rolls. And I, you know, it's a strange habit. I mean, people, people get, I've got used to it now, but you know, I always like a, a brandy in the morning. And, uh, and I picked it up from just being around fish markets around the world. I think it was like going to Paris to run juice for the first time, eh? And, uh, and that's what we do, sus. Yeah, you know, it's, um, and it still goes on today. Both COVID and the explosion in social media have had an impact on every aspect of life. With consumers now only two mouse clicks away from the source of supply, consumers have access to fishermen like never before. The increased costs of fishing, limited supply of seafood, and an ever-shrinking supply chain now provides the perfect opportunity for a more direct relationship between catcher and cook. The COVID lockdowns have provided some interesting opportunities for savvy operators like Mitch. Demand for seafood is going up and up and up. And in Brixham, for the first time in its history, which is hard to believe, we've got fishermen uh, in small day boats that are actually landing uh, their fish uh, directly to customers, so literally selling it off the boat to people. And uh, it's magical to see. And, uh, and I hope that after, after this is over, uh, it'll be something the town will continue. Yeah, so we had, it was Easter Monday, and uh, we're out fishing. The market prices are pretty depressed at the moment. And the species are little boat catches, you know, there's lots of lemons and uh, lemon sole, um, skate and that sort of thing. I said to Nick the Skipper, look, 
high tide, let's just tie it up. I'll send an email out to our customers and say, look, come and buy it off the boat. We'll be there for like from 12 till 1.30 or something. And uh, I was, I kind of thought, you know, if five or six people turn up, we sell a bit of fish, we can start building it into something. As we were taking the boxes off the boat and just putting them on the quayside, I reckon there were 150 people queuing around the harbour to buy this fish. And uh, what was really amazing was I said to everyone, look, we've got no scales. Bring your, bring your bags, bring your containers, bring whatever you've got. And we'll give you the fish. And I kind of know fish prices in my head. So I was just saying, look, there's a five of theirs. It's a tenner. This is this. And uh, and it was fantastic, man. It was really great. And what you realize is that, you know, it's the excitement of fish. And as long as you're not charging above the earth, but, you know, th then people are happy. But the best part about it was, is that we reckon that the catch on the market in today's prices would have been worth about 250 quid. And uh, we sold 951 quid's worth of fish in an hour. So you imagine what that does for the economics of a small fishing boat. Um, you know, he only has to, he, he, it's amazing because he only has to fish once a week now. And, uh, you know, that means less danger and it also means less pressure on fish stocks if we can make that happen, you know. Whilst the catching and cooking of seafood has remained, in the main, pretty consistent over the years, increased demand, lessening supply and the globalisation of the market has driven many changes in the industry. Some good, some which require a modification of the thinking of everyone from catcher to cook. You know, the biggest change that I've seen here is uh, much more of an interest in seafood. There's a lot of people uh, opening seafood restaurants. It's pretty cool. But the, sadly, uh, the, the things that I've seen uh, less of, less imported fish. There used to be an awful lot of tuna, sawfish, mahi-mahis, exotics coming into the UK. There's less of that. And um, I guess that's about global decline. And, uh, and also I see, I've seen species that we have here decline too in terms of size and I think about my you know my 20 years when I'd open a box in my fishmonger it'd be full of wild salmon we've 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 fished all that now um huge cod you know huge turbots uh you know 17 18 kilo fish massive things and now we just don't see them anymore and uh, I think you know our fishing fleet has sunk uh, uh, sorry sunk has shrunk and uh, and the fishery out there is well managed but you know the size of fish has declined over the years and that's a shame Seafood, as the core ingredient for a specialty restaurant, demands a serious commitment from both restaurateur and diner. Possibly the most difficult specialty restaurants to operate, great seafood restaurants can be hard to find. The UK, and in particular its capital London, has a unique bounty of great seafood restaurants. Yeah, seafood in London goes well. I mean, what's really interesting is, I think seafood is probably dominated by the, the big ones, the Scots, the Jay Sheikis of the world. You know, those are the kind of old stalwarts of the industry where you where you would go along enjoy this great environment and great seafood and, and people trust it but there's also a lot of um sort of youngsters that have uh, new to the industry that started up mate of mine rick too good has started up a a restaurant with a strange name called prawn on the lawn but he was one of my managers at uh, fishworks and he's really taken the idea and concept of fishworks which is a fishmonger and a restaurant together and uh, he's improved on it and built it now he has uh, two restaurants doing well there's a couple of guys got a restaurant called The Oysterman, um, doing fabulously well. And Wright Brothers, uh, Robin and Ben Wright, they're oyster farmers, and they've got they've got restaurants around London uh, bringing in seafood. So London is well served. I think the problem with eating seafood in London is it's, it's very expensive, um, just because they're having to buy it secondhand. This is the, the the strange thing. You can pay anything from forty-five to sixty-five pounds for a Dover sole. Um, I mean, the price of Dover sole has gone up on the market. You'd be paying 45 to 50 pounds for a piece of turbot. Um, and I think, you know, oysters, you know, three, four, five quid each for an oyster, depending on what they are. 
So I think if you went into any of those restaurants, you, you're not going to get much change from, you know, depending on what you're drinking, decent bottle of wine, you'd be spending 80 to 100 pounds a head, I would have thought. The seafood industry is unlike any other. Dynamic and operating in an ever-changing environment it can also be sometimes slow to change. It's interesting. I don't think one thing that I found when I did my tour of Australia with you guys is you are so much more innovative than we do in the way that you uh, process and integrate how fishermen kind of move up and become salesmen and then make products and you know pick meat and all the rest of it. Whereas we, we're pretty much doing the same as what we've always done. I mean, there are some oyster farmers uh, that are doing you know amazing stuff down in. Uh, Portland, you know, we buy our oysters from a guy there, Nigel Bloxham, and uh, it's the most beautiful piece of water. It's a fleet in behind the beach, and uh, the oysters there are, are, are pretty spectacular. But again, we don't do such a good job of marketing them like you guys do in Australia. I remember going down to the Air Peninsula with you and just sort of, you know, you know, reading that booklet about all those producers there, and I was just thinking, this is fantastic. These guys really, really embrace what they do, and so do the consumers. So there's not a huge amount of innovation that goes on in the fishing industry per se, which is a, a real shame. We've got some mussel farmers in Lime Bay that's probably, these guys are the most <coughs> innovative that I've come across. And they, you know, they're growing their mussels at different points around Lime Bay. And so where the food is rich and lots of nutrients, and we're growing lots and, and, uh, and lots of mussels. But there are some pretty innovative um, uh, fish merchants now, younger guys, I say, getting into it probably doing what you were doing 10 years ago, dealing directly with the day boats, the line fishing boats, not selling very much fish, um, but selling high quality fish. So buying them, you know, able to phone their customers, say, you know, X boat is on the way in, it's got four sea bass, one's 1.8 kilos, one's 2.1, and selling them before they're landed. And, uh, and that's happening in, uh, in top end restaurants, you know, which is pretty cool. Each region has its seafood icon. Striped bass on the east coast of the US, Saint-Pierre in Western France, and snapper in New Zealand. But perhaps the most highly acclaimed and sought after luxury fish is the Dover sole, a mythical fish which screams celebration. It is the fish which can make grown men cry and chefs fight over. Oh man, well, you know, I was in Paris just before this kicked off and I had a Dover sole in a restaurant called La Fontaine de Mar. And it was the best Dover sole I've ever eaten in my whole life. And it was just a, a it was, Man, it was amazing. And he, I know I just said, like, you can't be, you've got to be by the sea. And there I was in central Paris. But what made it so good is it was a properly cooked saumonier. And you, the, for me, the, this is the best way of cooking it. Even though in our restaurants, we grill them over fires, we do all sorts of things with them. When they're, when they're cooked and poached in butter, they become something else. So you take, you skin your Dover sole both sides, you dip it in flour, you give it a good slap uh, to take off any excess flour. You get a pan, a nice oval pan, hot with lots of butter in, and you sear the dark side of the fish first, or what would have been the dark side of the fish, and you just get some colour on it, and then you turn it over. And then you add more and more butter, and you wait for that butter to seriously foam, and then you continue to baste the fish. You just keep doing it, and keep doing it, and keep doing it, until the fish takes on, you know, the flour becomes wonderfully sticky. The butter that it's being poached in is just like, this fish is beautifully, golden slightly you know the frills are crisping up and then you lift the fish out of the butter and the trick is this is that you don't want it swimming in butter even though you've cooked it in like half a pound of butter there is no butter left on the fish it's just this golden beautiful it's non-greasy and you lift it out and you put it on the plate and they served it with the creamiest mashed potato ever and a wedge of lemon and I was and, and some tartar sauce and I was sitting there just thinking like nothing in the whole world 
can beat this a piece of fish. And I think that's where like chefs go wrong. Do you know what I mean? There's like so much cleverness. But if you could execute something like that, it is just the best thing in the world. And uh, and I don't think you can beat it. I had some soles uh, night before last, got them off the market and came home. There were three of us eating, so I, I couldn't manure them because it takes, I haven't got three pans, so I just grilled them. And uh, mate, honestly, when they're straight off the market and you can taste the sea, it's just wonderful. Mitch Tonk's unfailing commitment to seafood in all its guises, in all parts of the world, but especially in his beloved Devon, provides inspiration to all of us who love to talk, listen and eat seafood. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.